You know, Jesus said a lot of really interesting things. He would say things like, well, if you want to be first, you actually need to make yourself last. He would say crazy things like if you want to um, you'll love God, then you need to love your, your neighbor like yourself. But, you know, one of the really interesting things Jesus said was that we're actually called to love our enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I grew up kind of in mid-Missouri, and, you know, we, we, as a Mizzou Tiger fan, we were bred to hate the Kansas Jayhawks, right? As Denver Bronco fans, you're bred to hate the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Like, I just think there's a lot of the, or the Las Vegas Raiders, right? We can all agree on that. And, and so there are these certain things that we are just taught to do, and there's people who are just taught to be our enemies. And I think sports is one of the places you see it. Some of you may have seen this. Back in February, there was a, uh, a playoff softball game between Grandview University and Southeastern University. And um, a player by the name of Caitlin Moses stepped to the plate. And I've got a picture here to show you. Caitlin stepped up and hit a grand slam, hit a go-ahead grand slam that put her team ahead by one. And then as she rounded first base, she collapsed to the field with an injury. And the rules state that their own player, their own teammates can't pick up the player, but the other team can. Now, the other team could have left her down, that her run wouldn't have counted, and the game would have remained tied. Hopefully that team would have been able to continue on in the playoffs. But instead, sportsmanship won out. The other team actually picked up Caitlin, as you can see here, crossing home plate here. That was actually the go-ahead run, and they ended up winning the series and advancing in the playoffs. And so what a cool picture of sportsmanship, right? But it makes me wonder, is this what Jesus means when he says we need to love our enemies, right? Now, now hopefully, many of you are sitting here thinking right now, well, I don't really have enemies. I mean, yeah, there's the obnoxious Chiefs fan that talks to me every Sunday from stage. (laughs) And sure, there's the overposter on social who shows a picture of every meal they cook. And then there's the guy who always takes my favorite parking spot at work, right? Like, but outside of that, I really don't have any, any enemies. And I hope you don't. But let me ask you. The church is a place we can be honest, right? I hope. You guys are like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Let me ask you this. Who is the person or who are the people in your life that when something bad happens to them, you silently cheer on the inside? See, of course, you're going, hey, Drew, not me, right? I never do that. I would never do that. But there's a reality that we live in a broken world and that there are people that are just different than us, people that we don't agree with the way they live, we don't agree with the way they vote, we don't agree with the way they think, we don't agree with what they believe. And so we kind of don't think they're worthy of success or they're worthy of blessings or they're worthy of good things. Like, let me ask you this. When this guy got a job... How many of you thought, yes, Josh McDaniels to the Raiders? You Bronco fans were like, man, the Raiders are going downhill quick, right? Right? Like, so you do cheer. If your favorite team loses, you cheer. If somebody at work doesn't get the promotion that you don't like, you silently cheer. And we don't want to admit that because we know that's not right. But there is this reality that we live in a broken world. And as saints, if you believe in Jesus, you've been rescued, you've been saved and redeemed. We are now saints. But yet there is still sin. Does that make sense, guys? There's still sin 
in our lives. And one of the things that happens is there are just people that we view as, we may not call them our enemies, but there's people we view as different, and there's people we view as unworthy, and there's people we view as unlovable. There just is. And let's be real about that. And so maybe the place you see this the most is in war. You know, it's interesting. Right now, we, we think we live in a pretty peaceful time. Yeah, we know we got Russia and Ukraine going on, but let me show you a map. This is a current map that shows you all the conflicts going on right now in Africa, Asia, and Europe. That's a lot of conflicts currently in place between people, people groups, within civil war and nations. Check this map out. This is a map from 2007, or 21. These are all of the civil wars that took place in Africa. Isn't that amazing? In Africa alone, at this point in time, there were 17 civil wars just two years ago. 17. Uganda, Rwanda, and the Congo, many lives lost. I'm sure many of you have heard about the, the conflict between Northern Ireland and Ireland that took place for 30 years, 1968 through 1998. But what is interesting is the longest lasting war actually was the Reconquista between Spain and Portugal. Here's a really cool artist's rendering of this war. It started in 711, ended in 1492. 781-year war between two countries right next to each other. So there's this reality that exists in the heart of mankind that we don't like other people because of something, because of what makes them different or because they, even in our own country, because they may vote differently than us, they may think differently than us, they may believe differently than us, but we see it in war, but guys, we see it in our neighborhoods. I mean, just look back at the 2020 election. Depending upon whether you voted blue or red, you were looked at by the other side as an enemy. You were spoken down to. You were dehumanized. You know, if in our current climate, if you don't fully support the LGBTQIA plus movement, you are an enemy. You're viewed as an unloving, unkind person. And so there's this, 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 this view of we got people groups standoffish against each other, even within our own countries, within our own neighborhoods, sometimes even within our own families, maybe even within our own churches. And it makes me wonder, is this just the way life is? Do we just accept the fact that the world is broken, that things are messy, that we're gonna be dealing with this thing forever and we just gotta do our best to try to navigate it? Is that just where we are as a people? It's where a lot of people think we are. But this is what's so radical about what Jesus has to say is that this is not the way we were meant to live and this is not the way we were created to have relationships. What's the answer how do we stop viewing people as our enemies? How do we stop viewing the other people as unlovable or unworthy or unredeemable? Well, according to Jesus and what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 10, it comes from changing the way that we see people in general. You know, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been in a series that we're calling Kingdom Builders, and we're looking at the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you see that Jesus really calls the church to respond and to grow. And he, he picks out his disciples as leaders and apostles, and they begin to take the message out with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting is that you, you begin to see that there are a lot of cultural pressures at play, just like in our day today. And one of the main ones was that the, the Jews hated the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? The Gentile was a word for the non-Jews. 
And so this isn't just an American thing we deal with where people hate each other, depending upon how you vote or what you believe. This is a, a mankind thing, and this happened in the days that Jesus walked. You know, the, Jew, the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs or dirty dogs, and they would dehumanize them. They would look down on them. And so for the Gentiles, they, they, they were far off. To, to be accepted in the Jewish culture, they actually had to become Jewish and get circumcised and begin to do all the dietary laws and they begin doing all the purification stuff. And so you, you see this kind of uh, tension at play. What had happened was, if you, if you go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, when God rescues his people out of Egypt, he gives them the law. Somebody say the Mosaic law. So the Mosaic law came from Moses, where the word Mosaic comes from. And it was God's basically guidelines to people to show them how to live in community. And so God would tell them things like, hey, you should dress a certain way. You should wash a certain way. You should eat a certain way. They had dietary laws like you couldn't eat shellfish or you couldn't eat pork. And, you know, you guys are bumming right now, right? You're like, damn, man, jalapeno wrapped shrimp. Wrapped in bacon. I mean, that's like God's greatest gift. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but they couldn't eat it, right? They could have the jalapenos, but that was it. And, and so you had all these things. And what, what, what God was doing was he was trying to create this culture in Israel to make them different than the other nations. We, we don't really have the reason why. We kind of have God saying, don't do these things. But many scholars look back and go, well, there's reasons for this, right? Like they, they, they were trying to keep the Jewish people healthy and they were kind of trying to keep the Jewish people safe, and they were trying to make them different than their neighbors. I mean, their neighbors were sacrificing their, their babies to false gods and doing horrible things. They would, they would do all kinds of things with animal flesh and blood. And so God, when he said, don't eat these things, don't do these things, it wasn't necessarily because eating pork is bad. Many scholars think it was really because if you don't cook pork to a certain temperature, it'll make you sick, unlike beef. If you don't make fish, cook fish a certain way, it'll make you sick. And God's trying to keep his people healthy. If you, you're not supposed to, to do certain things because that makes you different than the other nations around you. And therefore, you can stand out to those other nations as a light. Does that make sense? And so, you know, one of the, one of the, the kind of questions we wonder is like, well, how did God's law for his people, which was trying to make them a light to the other nations, how did it turn into a hatred for the other nations? And it was because arrogance began to come from the hearts of the Jews. The Jewish people began to think that they were better than the Gentiles or the Greeks, or the Canaanites, and all these things. And because of that, they began to have this arrogance towards anybody that wasn't Jewish. And so this attitude would, would spill into the time that Jesus lived, where they viewed that anybody wasn't Jewish was unclean. They were common. They were dirty. And so fast forward now, you've got Jesus and the disciples and they are, Jesus is trying to help change these perspectives. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 10 is that God speaks to Peter, one of the leaders of the church, and helps him to, to change his mind about how we view other people. So this is, this is really good. And I think God's going to use an interesting man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, to do it. So um, Grab your Bibles, Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I think there's something that the early church took away, and I think there's a huge takeaway for us, too, in how we view others. Okay, notice this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He was a, he was a, a Roman who was in charge of a, a basically a, a hundred soldiers, a legion of soldiers. A centurion who was known as, an Itali who was known as the Italian cohort. 
A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously, generously to the people, which means he gave money to the Jews, and prayed continually to God. So we meet Cornelius. Cornelius is what they refer to as a God-fearing man. Somebody say God-fearing. So God-fearing man, if you ever come across it in the Bible, is a term for a Gentile who believes in the Jewish God, Yahweh, but hasn't converted to be a Jew. Now, he was living in Caesarea by the sea. Here's a picture. I actually had an opportunity to go to Caesarea by the sea. Here was a bunch of guys in our group. We're actually, um, it, we're right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, hanging out in the amphitheater where Pontius Pilate would have spoke. This is where Pilate lived. Herod had built a big castle here. And we see that, that Cornelius was a big deal. He was a, a soldier, uh, a commander, kind of a captain who led a large group of Roman soldiers. And so he was very much loved by the Jewish people. They respected him as much as you could respect a non-Jew, but um, they still kept their arms distance from him. And so notice this, Cornelius is, is a, a dude that has a heart for the Lord, and, and notice he has a vision from God. Look here at verse 3. And the ninth hour of the day, so the day started at 6. Somebody do the math. What time is that? 6 p.m. You guys got it. <laughs> By the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God notices. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. Now, this is a vision. What's the difference between a vision and a dream? So one of the things you see is, you guys ever daydream, right? Well, I think we all do, right? Where you kind of just like zone out and you just kind of, you're playing a memory in your mind, right? You're thinking about something. So Cornelius is not sleeping. Cornelius, he's not dreaming. Cornelius isn't actually having a full interaction with this angel either. But it's a vision. Imagine in his mind eye, he's having this interaction. God is almost transporting him into this place where he can have this conversation. Okay, so it's a, it's a vision that he's having with his angel. And the angel's like, look, you need to go down to Joppa, and you need to meet Simon Peter. Now, he didn't know who Simon Peter was. Now, Joppa's an interesting place because this is where uh, Jonah fled to Tarshish, right? Joppa's modern-day Tel Aviv. And so Cornelius is like, okay, well, I, I need to, to send a group down there. And, and so he calls his, his, some, some of his um, men, and he sends them to Joppa from Caesarea. So this is probably 20 miles or so, and he, and he sends them down. I want you to notice something. This is really interesting. God's getting ready to teach Peter something. He's getting ready to show us something. But before he even teaches Peter, he starts motion by getting Cornelius' attention and sending Cornelius to go talk to Peter. See, one of the things that God always does is God never does anything in a vacuum. God is always going to confirm the moves he's making through other people or through his spirit or through a circumstance. And so Peter's going to have this interaction with, with God. But before that even happens, God sends Cornelius to, to find him. And whatever your situation is that you're working through or whatever situation you're waiting on God for, just know that God is already so many steps ahead of us, that God is already interweaving our stories together. And you're going to see how he does this here with Peter. So Cornelius has this vision. He sends men to Joppa to meet Peter, Simon Peter. And notice this verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop uh, about the sixth hour to pray. So it's the next day right? 
It's, it's about 3 p.m., and Peter goes up to pray. Back in those days, houses were, were flat roof. You go up on top, kind of a patio on top. There's often a place that you could catch in the heat of the day, maybe some shade. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. Well, don't we all, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? And so he goes up on the top, and he falls into a trance. So he, he, like me, at 3 o'clock, I'm hungry, I take a nap, right? This is what Peter does. He falls into a trance, and notice this, verse 11, and he saw, he has this vision, okay, in this trance, and he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending. Imagine like you're getting ready to put a, you know, like the fitted sheet on your bed, right? And you flip it out and it falls down. He sees this great sheet come down in front of him and it comes down and by its four corners upon the earth. So it's a great huge sheet. All Peter can see is this white sheet now that comes down all four corners of his, of his view. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, would that freak you out? <laughs> or what, right? It's like everything turns white and he's like, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so Peter's like, well, by, he knows God, this is God, right? He says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Okay, don't miss those words. Common or unclean. There's another word that the Jewish people will use. It's kosher. You guys heard kosher? So kosher means fit to eat. Non-kosher means non Fit to eat. You guys got it, right? Non-fit to eat. And so Peter is, is sitting here and God's saying, take and eat everything you see. So on this cloud, he sees all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds of the air, right? So he's seeing cows, he's seeing pigs, he's seeing shrimp, he's whatever, right? Just fill it out, right? He's probably seeing shrimp with jalapenos wrapped in bacon, right? Like that's probably like in the middle, right? And he's just like, I don't know that guy looks so good, but I don't know. Can I eat that? Is that okay? So he's like, God, I've never eaten any of that stuff before. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. The word common means unholy. The word unclean means impure. And so go back to the Mosaic law, right, and the dietary restrictions. It was no pork, no shellfish, no bacon-wrapped shrimp jalapenos, like, you know, no pulled pork no baby back ribs, like all these things. And again, there was a reason for this. God had given them this reason to set them apart and make them different than their neighbors. But it was in Peter's custom that you just don't eat these things. And so Peter sees the pork and he sees the ribs and he sees all these things. And he says, God, I have never eaten these things because according to his lifestyle and his rules and restrictions with his diet, that would make him dirty. And he'd have to go wash and do all these ritual cleanings. But notice what God says to him. He says, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never eaten anything common. And notice what God says to him in verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time. And he says this. Don't miss this. This is huge. What God has made clean, do not call what? Common. So God says, what I've made clean, why are you calling it common? Why are you calling it unclean? And this happened three times. When the Bible does something in threes, we need to pay attention because God always has a message for us. And so a lot of scholars have looked at this and said, okay, what is God saying here? Is God talking about food, right? We're, we we kind of all want him to, right? Like, God, I hope you're talking about bacon-wrapped jalapeno shrimp. Like, like seriously, I, I, I hope. And, and so one of the things a lot of scholars will say is God declaring all food are clean in Acts chapter 10, is God calling, declaring that Jewish dietary laws are gone? 
Because I'm sure the disciples would love a little bacon with their eggs. And I'm sure they'd love a main crab cake. Have you guys had a main crab cake? I'm telling you. It's like you know there's a God when you have main crab cakes. But I want you to know this. I hate to disappoint you, but actually this is not about food. Acts chapter 10 is not about food. It's about changing Peter's perspective. Now you might be going, okay, hold on a second. So does this mean I'm in trouble because I eat so many hot dogs, right? We think hot dogs are made of pork. We're not sure, but we think they are. But some of you might wonder, well, does this mean that God didn't do away with the Old Testament dietary laws? And there's so much to unpack here, we can't get to it. We probably should sit down over some baby back ribs and have a conversation about it. But um, hopefully that's okay. But the, the short answer is this. We see that Jesus came to fill the old covenant. What was the old covenant? It was the Mosaic law. The old covenant, the Mosaic law was how people interacted with God. We see that Jesus came and he gave his life, died on the cross to fulfill the old covenant. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He did everything we couldn't do. He, he did not fall into temptation like we do. He held up all the standards of holiness. And when he gave his life for us, he gave his life as the perfect sacrifice which fulfilled the old covenant for us forever. Isn't that good news? That's really good news. And then Jesus instituted a new covenant. We find this out the night before he's arrested during communion, the Lord's Supper, that it's now a covenant of grace. Somebody say grace. It's a covenant of grace, which means that we are now made right in the eyes of God through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not about how good our faith is, how strong our faith is. It's faith in Jesus Christ that he came and died for us. And when we put our faith in him, he makes us new and he gives us new life. So this means that all the old dietary laws in the old covenant are, have actually been fulfilled. Somebody say praise God for that, right? <laughs> so that means that, yes, you can have as much bacon as you want and you can have as many baby back ribs as you want, but you just might go to heaven quicker if you guys eat <laughs> as much of those things as you want. Does that make sense? So God make all this food is clean for us. It's just not that great for your body, right? Let's just be honest. So if this isn't about food, then what's it about? Interestingly, it's about people. And we'll find out next. Notice what happens next. Verse 17, and while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he sees this sheet, he sees all these animals. God's saying, don't call it common. Don't call it unclean. Peter's wondering, what am I going to do then? What does this mean? He has this vision and God basically behold, it says, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house stood at the gate. And, and so verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the, okay, here it is. The spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. So, yep. So, so Peter's having this vision. All of a sudden, God comes like, hey, there's three men here for you. I want you to go with them. And don't, don't ask. Don't ask questions. Just go. Now, I, I love this, honestly, because notice what he says. He says, go without hesitation. Let me ask you, how many of you go with hesitation? Right? Yeah. God's like, hey, I want you to, to do this thing. I want you to serve in this place. I want you to talk to this person. And we, we're like, oh, I don't know, God. I'm not sure. I'm not, God, are you really in this? And God's like, yeah. 
It's like the old joke about the guy that's in the river. You guys know this one, right? The guy's drowning in the river, and then a boat, a little canoe comes by, and the guy's like, no, no, I'm fine. God's going to rescue me. And then a, then a speedboat comes by, and he's like, no, no, I'm fine. God's going to rescue me. And then the helicopter comes in and drops the, you know, the, the ladder. Like, come on, grab a hold of it. And the guy's like, no, I'm fine. And then he drowns, and he goes to heaven, and God's like, he's like, God, why didn't you rescue me? He's like, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Like, what, what are you expecting? Go without hesitation. Like, notice the people around us, how they're working and how people are speaking and the way that God's moving. God doesn't ever do anything in a vacuum. So God says, Peter, go without hesitation because I got something to show you. And so Peter welcomes them in. They have dinner that night. And the next day, they go. And so notice this. He, he uh, verse 24, says this. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. And he said to them, you yourselves know, Peter says this, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. This was one of those man-made rules, right? Jews cannot hang out with Gentiles. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, Peter got it. It wasn't about food. It was about people. Peter thought that these Gentiles were unlovable, deplorable, Dirty dogs, and God says, no, they're just like you, actually. You need to see them in the right light. Verse 34, truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So I want you to notice this, that, that, that word, uncommon, unclean. We don't use those words, but we do use other words. In, in our culture, we use a lot of words. How many of you guys remember the movie Aladdin, right? Aladdin. What did they call Aladdin? They called him Street Rat. They called him Riff Raff. Now, I don't want you to say the names that you've called other people, but we know they're not good. Why do we do that? Because when we say a name and we talk down to somebody, we dehumanize them, right? You don't even realize you do it. But you dehumanize people when you give them different names. Back, I remember 2011, 9-11. Where were you? If you're half of you are too young to even be born that day. But those of us that were born, we can remember where we were, right? What did people call every person who worshipped the Muslim, you know, was involved with the Muslim faith after 9-11? Extremists, right? So you'd see a person who maybe looked like they were from that part of the world or who had a Muslim faith and you thought of them as jihadists or extremists. Do you guys know people that follow the Muslim faith, most of them are really nice people. But we called them, people were called extremists and jihadists, and it was dehumanizing them. It was bringing them down. I mean, the 2020 election was a disaster, right? If you were voting for red, you were an idiot. If you were voting for blue, you were a baby killer. We'll talk about dehumanizing words. And nowadays, with the, the media and the activist groups around the LGBTQIA movement, if you don't fully support it, you're called an unloving, hateful bigot. And so there, there's so many words that people call people to dehumanize them. But here's the reality, guys, is we as Christians, we've done this too. It's not just that people are talking down to us. We're talking down to other people too. And we might not be using the words, those same words. We might not be using the words of unclean and common. But you know what we're doing? Is we're looking at people who don't act like we think they should act, who don't believe like we think they should believe, or making decisions or voting or doing something different than we do. And you know what we call them? 
unlovable, unlovely, unworthy. And so we get in our mind that like to hear the good news about Jesus, to be invited into this community of faith, that you have to already fit this model. And Jesus tells Peter, no, dude, the Gentiles are very different than you, but I still love them, and they need to hear the gospel too. And I think this is one of the things that God is saying to us. Don't call people common. Don't call them unclean. Don't call them unlovable. Don't call them unworthy, but call them People who need Jesus. I think that one of the realities is this, that Jesus gave his life for all of humanity. Jesus didn't come for the Jews. They thought he did. This is Jesus revealing to Peter that, no, he came for everybody. Jesus didn't just come for Christians who act right. Jesus came for all of humanity because all of humanity is broken. All of humanity is sinful. And here's the reality, guys. This is the harsh truth. Without Jesus, we're all dead in our sins. I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, I think Paul says it perfectly, that, that we were all dead in our sins, but God, because God loves us. But God loves us because of, through, our, through what Jesus did for us on the cross and through faith in that, God rescues us. You know, Romans 5, 8, Paul says, you know, that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like Christ died first for us when we didn't earn it, when we weren't lovely, when we didn't deserve it. And Jesus came and died for all of humanity. And the only way to find life is through Jesus. And so what Jesus wants us to do is to love our enemies like he loved us. How did Jesus love us? He welcomed us. He spent time with us. You know, I, I love the, the story in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus meets with, with Nicodemus, or no, I'm sorry, with Zacchaeus. You know, in Jewish culture, the, the, the enemies to the Jews, more than anything in their own culture, were tax collectors. If you were a tax collector in Jewish culture, you were the enemy. You were unlovable. You were deplorable. And yet, what did Jesus do? He ate with them. He hung out with them and told jokes with them, probably watched, watched movies with them, did all kinds of things, right? Went bowling, probably threw axes, all kinds of stuff. And, and what did the religious leaders say? Because they hated the tax collectors. What did they say? Well, Jesus just hangs out with these tax collectors and these sinners. Don't you know what kind of people these are, Jesus? Don't you know that these are unlovable people, Jesus? And remember what Jesus said in Luke 19.10? You might remember. He said this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When they made fun of Jesus for hanging out with, Matt, with Levi, with Matthew, one of his disciples who was a tax collector, what did Jesus say? It's not the well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Well, who's Jesus talking about? All of us. All of us because of sin and brokenness. And so don't, don't miss this. Jesus just didn't come to spend time with everybody who has it together. He didn't come to spend time with those who were lovely those who seem worthy, those who seem deserving of the gospel. He came to spend his time with everybody. He came to take the gospel to everybody. And I think one of the things that this text shows us is that we love like Jesus by showing others that they matter. Peter walks into Cornelius and he's like, you know, guys, it's actually against my rules to hang out with you guys. But God has showed me that you matter. God has showed me that he has no partiality on what you look like, what color of skin you have, what, how you vote, 
God, God has pr- proven to me that none of that matters. What matters is that you get to hear the gospel because we all need to hear the gospel because we all are broken because of sin. And one of the most important ways that we can show people they matter is the same way Jesus did it, and that is just spending time with people. That is breaking down the walls with people. And that is sharing the gospel with people. I want you to think about this. If somebody, Pastor Mitch last week talked about how we can leave a legacy by sharing the gospel, right? And so who shared the gospel with you? Who shared the gospel with them? Who shared the gospel with them? Work your way back, right? None of you would be here right now if someone didn't think that that person was valuable enough to love and spend time with and share the gospel with. And then that person found the next person and found that they were valuable and lovable and worthy of sharing the gospel with. And that person shared the gospel with you. That person loved you. That person spent time with you. I mean, that is how we love our enemies, isn't it? The same way Jesus did it, by spending time with each other. And loving someone enough to share the gospel. And because they did, it changed your life. It changed your eternal zip code. And it changed your family forever. I think Jesus wants the same thing to move through us as well. Notice what Peter does. This is what Peter does. In verse 36, he shares the gospel. It says this, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. This is the Lord sent Jesus to speak to us. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 38, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then... Verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, these are the the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed. They're like, oh my gosh, these Gentiles really are getting saved because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This is a big moment in the greater story because at this point we see that God takes two people groups and makes them into one. And this matters for you and me. Because God is showing us that all of humanity, we're all the same. And Jesus came and gave his life for all of us. And we all need to hear the good news of Jesus. But it also shows us something else really important. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from today, it's this. That it's only the message of Jesus that changes hearts. It's only the message of Jesus that changes hearts. I think one of the big challenges in our culture is we think that if we just affirm what everybody does and say it's okay, then we're going to show them love. And then they're going to feel okay and they're going to they're meet Jesus. Or, or they're going to feel loved and so they're going to be more open. So we're just going to say, whatever you do is fine. And then there's another group of us that says, well, actually, we're going to show you tough love. And I'm going to show you tough love and everything is you're going to get it. I'm going to really help you wake up and see. But I think what we see here is the reality is that by me affirming everything that you do and all of your sinful choices, I get in the way of what God is doing. And when I'm over here speaking mean, harsh words to you, hoping to tough love you up, I'm gonna get in the way of what God is doing. The reality is it's not your words that changes hearts. It's the words of Jesus. It's God's words. It's the Holy Spirit's words 
that change our hearts. And the way that God uses us is we build relationships and then we share how God's moving in our lives and we share how God can move in theirs. And that is the way that God saves souls and changes hearts. It's not our responsibility to to, to fix them. It's our responsibility to love and to share and to help people see that Jesus loves them so much he gave his life for theirs. I want to kind of close with a story. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary, and he and a group went down to Ecuador, and they had his heart to, meet the, to, to reach the, the Alca people. And so what they did was they flew their plane into this remote village, this remote area, this remote tribe, the, the Alca people who had never heard the gospel before with the heart for them to come to know Jesus. Well, they began to make contact. They began to, to lower supplies down. They had a loudspeaker where they would speak phrases of the Alka language. And they began to think that they started to make some inroads. And so they decided that it was time. They were going to land their plane, January 1959. They landed their plane, and they actually met one of the Alka warriors. And it went well. They took him on a plane ride. Things were great. And for days, they started to have interactions with the Alka people. Well, about day nine... They start to really think they've made some inroads. And so they see these two Alka women standing at the river. And so they wade into the river, and they, they, they notice that out of the woods come a group of the Alka warriors with spears in their hands, and they felt threatened by them. And before they could make a move, all four of those missionaries, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and two of their close friends all lost their lives right there in the river. Now, it would have been really easy at that point to view the Alka people as the enemy. Elizabeth Elliott and Rachel Saint, uh, Jim's wife and Nate's sister, it would have been really easy for them to say, these Alka people killed my brother and my husband. They are the enemy. They are unworthy of the gospel. They are unlovable. There is no way they deserve me to continue to try to teach them about the life-changing news of Jesus. That's not what they did. Over the next two years, they built a relationship with one of the Alka women who had left to the point where she was comfortable taking them back in. And within two years, they had built relationships with the Alka people to the point where they were invited to come live with them. And because of what happened with Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, and now they see the love of Jesus in, these, in the eyes of these two women, the whole village got saved and trusted in Jesus. You know, you, you think about the people that we view as different than us that are our enemies. Chances are they didn't take our brother from us. And they haven't taken someone we love from us. And, and I wonder, what would it look like if we as the church decided it's time for us to stop viewing other people as unlovable or different or unworthy of the gospel just because they don't look, act, or think like us, but it's time to realize that we're all in need of Jesus and that everybody needs to hear the truth. And what would it look like if we just made the decision right now to love everyone like Jesus loved us? See, the reality is this. I want to close with this. There's this reality in life that there's people in our lives that God has put around us who've never heard the truth. And if you don't tell them, nobody will. I mean, who's going to tell 
the person that God has pushed in your circle about Jesus if it's not you. Now, you can say, yeah, hopefully there's a pastor who lives in the neighborhood, or hopefully somebody goes and knocks on their door, or hopefully somebody invites them to church. But what if it's you that God called to do that? What about the, the guy at work who is on the opposite side of the political spectrum? How is he going to know that Jesus loves him? The, 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 the girl at school who's struggling with her identity, how is she going to know that Jesus loves him? That person at work who is, is, is fully pro-LGBTQIA+, and who thinks that every Christian they meet is a jerk, who hates them, how are they going to learn that Jesus came and gave his life for them unless we tell them? So I think this is the challenge for all of us that, that I want us to seriously ask God and to, to, to lean into this. And Father, what would you have me do? Who have you put into my circle that I need to speak to, that I need to build a relationship with, that I need to love like Jesus so I can share the life-changing truth of Jesus with them? So I think when we step out in boldness and trust that God's going to use us and it's not up to us, it's up to him, we'll be amazed, amazed to see what God will do. So who comes to mind? Who has God put in your circle for you to speak to this week, to invite over for dinner or take out the coffee to begin to build that relationship? Because when we're faithful, God is always faithful. Would you pray with me?